Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for, for the blessing of being back in this building and being able to meet and see each other again face to face. But even that, Father, is just a taste of what we really long for, which is to see you face to face. And while we wait for that day, we gain the benefit of your word, which is the opportunity to hear from you, to know you better, and to follow you more obediently. And what better way, Father, than to do that through the example of your son as we study him and his road to the cross, his sacrificial act of love for those who were at that time his enemies. We thank you, Father, for that demonstration of love and grace and mercy. And we ask, Father, that as we study it, going through the Gospel of Matthew, you will bring it to us in a fresh way, in a new way. And it will help us, Father, work through the challenges that we each face in obedience and in our desire to please you. That that example, Father, will make the difference for us in moments of temptation or struggle or trial. We look for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've been with us now for a while, then you know as we go through the Gospel of Matthew, verse by verse, we are hitting the point in the story where things get going. It's really starting to heat up now. The trial and the crucifixion of Christ is in the foreground now. And from this point forward in our study, through this, the end of chapter 26, end of 27 and 28, the story is going to sound familiar to most of us. I mean, I'm assuming we've probably all read the Passion story at some point, or maybe we've had another pastor teach us through it, or for that matter, you've probably just seen some of the movies, right? So we all know more or less what's coming. And that's good, it's helpful to a degree, but it's also a challenge as we study it now for this time, because although I'm sure the majority of what you've seen or heard is accurate to the text of Scripture, I'm also sure that at least in some cases it's not, and that you may be carrying with you some uh, misconceptions. You may have missed some important details, or uh, you've had people misrepresent the meaning of things in the text. And I'm only saying that because I've heard it. I would be surprised if you hadn't. And those details that we're here for are going to make a lot of difference in our understanding, and that's why I'm here, to help you walk through this in a way that's diligent and true to the text. So here's what you need to do with me in this. I want to ask you to put aside what you think you know. And I'm not saying all you know is wrong, of course, but what I'm saying is start new, start fresh, start with a clean slate. Let's take another look at this from the beginning of it as we are now getting into it. And that starts today with Jesus now moving from being a free man to a man under arrest and headed to the cross. Last week we looked at the Roman soldiers as they appeared in the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest Jesus, led by Judas, and followed by the religious leaders of Israel who had conspired to bring about these events. Now in that moment, the Romans are providing the muscle for this arrest, but it is the Jewish leaders who are the brains behind this operation. And Jesus knows this, which is why, where we pick up now in chapter 26, verse 55, Jesus does not even bother to address the soldiers at all. He just speaks directly to the Jewish leaders. Look at this in verse 55. At that time, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me, as you would against a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets. Then all the disciples left him and fled. We pause there for a moment. Jesus asked the religious leaders who were there with the Romans, 
Why did you enlist so much force against me? He's mocking them. He's mocking their weakness in relying on Gentile soldiers to enforce Jewish law. He says, look guys, you could have arrested me, you could have seized me in the temple grounds at any time, but you didn't do it then. And what he's referring to here, what Jesus is uh, intimating requires a moment of background. I need to explain some things from Jewish history at this point, and particularly from the relationship between Rome and Israel as it existed in that day. Under the situation Jesus was in at that time, Israel was governed by two different systems of law at that time. First, Israel was ruled by the law of Moses. That was their law, but it was both a religious law and it was the civil law of Jewish society. So Israel's political leaders were rabbis. Their uh, governing council, the Sanhedrin council, was a group of Pharisees and Sadducees. Their local leaders in the community were priests. So there was no division in that day between church and state. Every rule of society, every rule of life came out of the law of Moses and more specifically out of the Mishnah which was the Jewish rabbinical uh, rule book that they built off of the law of Moses, and really it's the only one they paid much attention to. So for a Jew, there was no distinction between church and state, they was, it was one and the same. Law of Moses ruled life. But Rome showed up in about 66 BC, and they conquered Judea. And as such, they brought a new law into the culture at that time. After they invaded, Judea became a province of Rome, and Rome ruled Judea according to Roman law. They brought in the Roman language, which formerly was Latin. They brought in Hellenistic or Greek culture, and they brought in pagan worship practices. And Romans did this everywhere. Everywhere they would conquer, they would force the local population to adopt these cultural and legal practices in place of whatever they were doing at the time when the Romans showed up. But when the Romans reached Judea, they soon discovered that Jews could not be ruled in the same way as other people that they had conquered elsewhere. The Jews had this pernicious tendency to resist Roman culture, Roman language, and especially they resisted any introduction of paganism or pagan worship. Unlike other cultures, Jews were actually willing to die before they would change their religion. Whereas other pagan cultures would trade one pagan god for another, they didn't really care that much. That posed a serious dilemma for the Romans because though they had the military power to enforce their will, certainly, it was a constant struggle. It was nothing but unrest in Judea at first. And the Jews would riot at a drop of a hat against any attempt to impose paganism on them or to you know, restrict them from their feasts or whatever else they might want to do. And, and quickly, the Romans figured out that they weren't going to win the Jews over. There was no getting through to them, no reasoning with these people, stiff-necked people. And so the Romans valued peace and stability. You know, the, the, the term Pax Romana means the peace of Rome. It's a way of capturing the ethos of ancient Rome. They wanted stability above everything. That's what allowed for economic development. That's what allowed for the, the expansion of the empire. So any disruption of that was a serious problem for Rome. And so they, they came to the point of a compromise. They realized that if they're gonna get peace and stability in Judea, they're going to have to make some exemptions for these Jews. And Caesar permitted 
the Jews in Judea to worship Jehovah rather than the Roman gods, and this was the only such exemption they made for any conquered people in the entire empire. Jews, not just in Judea, but throughout the Roman Empire, were not required to pay homage to Caesar as a god, nor were they required to worship him, nor uh, were they required to pay taxation on their own economy within the Jewish Uh, within the Jewish temple, within their religious world. The Jewish temple itself was uh, walled off, so to speak, from Roman authority, almost like an embassy today where it was considered Jewish territory, sovereign territory. They agreed to recognize the temple as such. They allowed the Jews to control and police the temple grounds on their own. In fact, Roman soldiers were not even permitted to enter into the temple except in a moment of rebellion or unrest where they had to go in to put down some kind of disturbance. So as long as the Jews kept peace in their own temple grounds, the Romans would refrain from entering or interfering with the operation of the temple, and that meant the Jews could conduct their own business within the temple in their own currency without taxation. That's why you see money changers in the temple, because the Roman currency that came in had to be changed over to the Jewish currency to do business in the temple. And then finally, Jews could govern other Jews within the Roman Empire, according to Mosaic law, including doing things like conducting their own trials and uh, punishing offenders under their own terms without Roman approval. But there was one major exception to that last rule. Jews could not institute capital punishment. The Romans reserved the right of the sword, as it's called, for themselves. So if the Jewish authorities, under Jewish law, convicted a Jew of a crime that was worthy of death, they had to go to the Romans to get approval to carry out the death sentence, and typically the Romans would do it for them in the form of crucifixion. And by the way, Rome was not particularly impressed with Jewish law, which means it was typically a challenge to convince Roman authorities that some Jew was worthy of death under Jewish law. They didn't really respect the law very much, but it was always a bit of a a challenge, and sometimes they'd get their way, sometimes they wouldn't. Now as a result, of these exemptions and allowances, the Jews always pushed the envelope. And like anyone would really, I mean, if you're under subjugation by a foreign power, you're always looking for some way to get out from under it. And one of the ways they pushed the limits of what they had been given was in this area of capital punishment. And the Jews had found an interesting way to get around this limitation. They would seize a Jew within the temple grounds when a temple, uh, when that person came into the temple, So somebody who was under indictment, somebody who was under suspicion, someone they wanted to try and convict and kill, they could grab that person if they got into the temple grounds where the Romans were not present and not enforcing law. And then without Roman oversight, without Roman intervention, they could conduct a trial in the temple and then drag the accused out into the temple court and stone them to death before any of the Romans who might have been watching from the Antonian fortress overlooking the temple mount, before they saw what was happening and could run down there and intervene and stop it. So the Jews had this interesting way of getting around the law. And in fact, there was a sign posted in that day on the entrance to the court of the women, which is the barrier between Gentile and Jew leading into the temple. And at that doorway, there was a sign that said, any Gentile that passes this point will be killed, basically. And that was the way the Jews and the the Romans respected one another and kept some semblance of peace in Judea. Now, technically, the Romans didn't approve of anything that I just said. They weren't happy that this was happening, Uh, and as I mentioned, if they could stop it, they would, but in most cases, they just looked the other way. One Jew dying in the court of the the temple at, you know, being stoned by other Jews, who cares? 
As long as the rest of the peace of Judea was held, they would let that go by. This is what Jesus is talking about. When Jesus stands there on the side of the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane in the middle of the night, being arrested by a cohort, some two to maybe 500 Roman soldiers and Jewish officials and all the rest, he looks at these guys and he says, why did you wait till now and then have to need the, the, the help of the Romans to arrest me? Why didn't you just seize me in the temple? Jesus has just spent the better part of the last four days teaching every day in the temple. At any moment, when they were ready, they could have gone into the temple ground, seized Jesus, and put him on trial, not needing a single Roman to help them do it. In other words, their choice to arrest Jesus now proves they have no case. Why? Well, look, if they had arrested Jesus in the temple during the daytime, in the full view of every other Jew who was in the temple ground at the time, this is Passover, there's a lot of people there, they would have had to see their accusations stand up to the scrutiny of the public and the full Sanhedrin council. They wouldn't have been able to do this in a you know, cloak and dagger, middle of the night kind of operation. And as such, the religious leaders knew that they did not have sound charges, they did not have reliable witnesses, they had no conviction against Jesus that they could assure. They were worried that if they took that move, they'd either have a riot from the people or they'd go to trial and he'd be exonerated for lack of evidence and they couldn't afford that. So instead, they bring the Romans out in the middle of the night on the basis of false accusations by a traitor. Proof that they have no case and Jesus is making that point to them subtly, mocking their weakness, mocking their cowardice, mocking the fact that they have nothing against him. And he adds there at the end, all of this has happened to fulfill scripture. And he's referring, I think, primarily to his own prophecies spoken earlier about the fact that he would be handed over to the Romans. Remember, he's been saying all along, this would be a process of two foes, the Jews and the Romans, one handing over to the other. And if this is such an important detail in the crucifixion of Jesus. I want you to consider for a moment what we would be saying today if Jesus had been apprehended in the temple by just the Jews. You know, it's already unfortunate that people malign Jewish people anti-Semitically by claiming that the Jews are responsible for Jesus' death. That is a false statement. At least it's incomplete. But it's equally wrong to say the Romans killed him because Scripture's testimony is God the Father put his son to death. That is the testimony of the Old Testament and the New. God the Father crushed his own son for our sake, according to scripture. Now, he did it through the agency of Jews and Romans, and that's important for one reason, perhaps more than any other, because neither Jew nor Gentile can say that they were free from culpability in the death of Jesus. Not, Jews didn't put him to death, Gentiles didn't put him to death, God the Father did it through Jews and Gentiles. Nobody gets a pass. And that's important here, and that's why the handed over moment had to happen. Jesus also predicted in that earlier time that he'd be abandoned by those who were following him, his disciples. And look at the end of verse 56. There's your fulfillment and the beginning of a night of sad behavior on the part of these men. You know, that little detail is one of those key moments that you find recorded in the Gospels that proves their authenticity. You know, if, the, if it were the case as some charge that the apostles just invented the whole thing, right? This is, this is a book of fairy tales. A bunch of guys got together, conspired, wrote it down, you know, compared their stories and said, ha ha, we're gonna put one over on the whole world. Well, first of all, we wouldn't still be talking about it 2,000 years later if that were true. But 
Let's say for argument's sake it is. You're writing the story. It's all made up. You can say whatever you want. How do you cast yourself in that movie? Think about it. The Jews had almost free reign to, um, to do what they want, say what they want about this moment, to, to, to explain it any way they wanted. And if they're recording this story entirely based on made-up ideas, you would not find moments like this in the gospel. Throughout the gospels, think about it. Throughout the gospels, the apostles who are writing the story, remember, they record themselves in a negative light time and time again. They are bumbling about, they're making poor choices, they're acting cowardly. I'm here to tell you guys, if they had invented the story of the gospel accounts, you would not see them depicted in this way. They would be the heroes of this story. That's human nature. They would, you know, if you invent a tall tale, at worst, you put yourself as an innocent bystander. At best, you're the hero. That's the nature of our pride. These men, though, represent themselves as weak and foolish and ignorant, and to me, that argues for the authenticity of these accounts. In fact, in Mark's account of this same moment where Jesus is pulled away from the Mount of Olives, here's how Mark describes his own behavior in his own gospel. Mark 14, 51. A young man was following him wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body, and they seized him, but he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. That's Mark talking about himself. All right, that is not the most flattering way to remember your part in these evening events, is it? I mean, the fact that they tell it like it is is strong proof for us to know these accounts came from accurate, honest eyewitnesses moved by God to report the truth. All right, so now Jesus is in Roman custody. Now, how did he get to this point again? How does the Messiah, the creator of the universe, the God who made these Romans, be taken by them? Well, because God is at work in this through them. Luke tells us in this same moment that God was at work as this takes place, giving Satan the upper hand over the light of the world, Jesus, for a very brief moment, and God planned and purposed this. I love the way Luke puts it, and I want you to think of this in the motif of Scripture. Scripture has a motif of light and dark, right? Dark is associated with evil and sin and the enemy, and light is associated with truth and God and righteousness. Keeping in mind this whole thing is happening when? In the middle of the night. The motif is playing out, and Luke adds this in Luke twenty-two, fifty-two. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come against him, Have you come out with swords and clubs as you would against a robber? While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this hour and the power of darkness are yours. So Jesus is reminding us that God appointed Satan and his forces to accomplish his plan. And Satan does not even realize in this moment he is following God's script as he goes about doing what he will with Jesus. And Jesus being in control of these events is actually orchestrating things according to a script that he wrote over 4,000 years ago in the garden. And let me remind you of something God spoke back in the Garden of Eden after the fall. In Genesis 3.15, speaking to Satan, he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. This little verse sometimes is called the Proto-Evangelium. That's a fancy way of saying the first gospel. Here's what that says, and here's why it's relevant in what we're studying this morning. Back in that moment, 
after the fall of the garden, the Lord appears, comes upon what has happened, knows, of course, what has happened, and as he begins to respond to it, he addresses all the players in the moment, Satan, the woman, the man, and he gets to Satan first. He says to Satan, I'm going to establish enmity, or that's a bible word, for conflict, a lack of harmony, a lack of common purpose. I'm going to put enmity between your forces and my forces, God's forces. And here's how he refers to those. He says, those who belong to Satan, his seed, and those who belong to God, and he calls them the seed of woman, he said, there will always be conflict between these two. I'm not going to let you find any common ground with me and my progeny in the world to come. Now, why does he use this weird term, seed of woman? Well, seed of woman is an oblique reference to the virgin birth. I mean, biblically speaking, women don't have, quote, seed. Men do. But when the Bible talks about the seed of woman, it's intentionally obtuse. That's, it's, it's oxymoronic, but it's in reference to virgin birth. So it's an allusion to Christ's birth. In fact, Paul says in, Galosh, uh, I'm sorry, in Galatians 3.16 that the term seed is singular, not plural, not seeds. Why? Because it is a reference to a certain person, to Jesus Christ. The virgin birth, in other words. So here's what he's saying in that very simple verse. He's saying, the seed of woman, i.e. Jesus, and those who are born of Jesus by being born again in faith, they will have enmity with all those who are not of Jesus but are of Satan. We have a very simple way we can say this today. All believers will have enmity with all unbelievers. Now, enmity does not mean you will go after them in an intentional desire for conflict. It means you have nothing in common. There's no basis for the two to find harmony because they are so diametrically opposed in their nature. So there will always be enmity or conflict between believers and unbelievers, between Satan's followers, though they don't think of themselves that way, of course, and Christ's followers. And ultimately, that verse is teaching that there comes a moment Two moments, actually, in which this battle between believers and unbelievers is climactic in Jesus against Satan. Two moments that Jesus and Satan personally get involved and go at each other, if you want to think of it that way. And he describes those two moments in verse 15 by saying, Satan will strike Christ's heel and Christ will strike Satan's head. If your your Bible says bruise versus strike, that's actually not what's written in the Hebrew. It's strike twice. The distinction is between where the strike happens. It's strike the heel, strike the head. And the point, of course, is striking the heel of your body is unlikely to be lethal. Striking the head is almost certainly going to be, and that's the distinction that's being made. The Lord is foretelling his plan of redemption in that one verse, the proto-evangelium. He's saying Satan will have an opportunity by God's ordained purpose to strike Christ, but in a limited sense in a sense that accomplishes God's purpose but does not ultimately result in Christ's destruction. That, of course, is a prophecy of the cross, the moment we're now studying. This is the moment of darkness. Jesus says, the power of darkness is yours. The hour is yours. He is saying, the script I wrote in Genesis 3.15, here's your part. Let's get on with this. Let's play the role that you've been assigned. Follow the script, Satan. This is your moment. Strike me, but you're striking me on the heel, so to speak because I'm not going to stay dead. When he, yes, amen. Yeah, he died on the cross, and that was Satan's blow, and I'm sure for at least three days, Satan was celebrating. 
But Jesus was raised again by the power of God. And by his resurrection, he demonstrated his power over death and conquered Satan's only tool, which is the fear of death. And as a result, he is now able to return the favor. That second battle, the one that was also foretold in Genesis 3.15, which still is yet to come, in a day, Christ will strike Satan on the head, meaning a fatal blow resulting in his destruction. That is actually fulfilled at the end of the kingdom when Satan is thrown in the lake of fire. If you want more on that, study Revelation. We have that available online. That is the plan that Jesus himself wrote, and that's the key. Jesus is the author and the perfecter of your salvation. He wrote this plan. I want you to think about that for a minute. As much as we can't imagine a man going to the cross willingly as Jesus does, think back even further. He's a man, Jesus has God in the form of man. He is one who wrote this plan before the foundations of the earth. Before he started the whole thing, he purposed that it would come to this. That is something that's even harder to understand. So as you watch the first of these two battles now in the gospel account unfolding here, I want you to remember darkness is getting the upper hand because Jesus ordained it. That enemy is striking Christ as he planned to accomplish the plan of redemption. But in a day to come, you know, this is the first half of the story, right? The sequel is still getting ready to play out. And in that moment, Satan will receive his final blow. Now here's what you need to remember about this. The theology of that's important. I hope you get something new out of that, but here's what you really need to know. If the father allows Satan this hour of authority over his own son, should we be surprised when the father opens that same door for Satan in our life? And I don't mean personally necessarily. I'm not saying Satan is camped outside your door. But he has plenty of others working with him, demons, demons fallen angels. It's not as though he's short on resources. And if God allowed Satan and his forces an opportunity to bring his son through this kind of a trial and the suffering that is included in it, then, and, and to do it for good, for the plan of redemption, then, as he told us once in the Gospels, we are not above our master. That is, we can't expect that he gets worse treatment than we do. That is, that we will somehow be exempt from the trials and the difficulties of Satan and his forces if God was not willing to spare his own son from those same kinds of trials. I'm not saying you will be crucified, obviously, but I'm saying you won't go out without something. I, I like to say no one gets out of this life unscathed. There's no such thing as the, the carefree Christian life. If that's something you've been promised, well, I'm sorry to disappoint you. It's not true. And I think anyone who's lived longer than a day as a Christian knows very well that's not true. But here's the big point. Here's your big opportunity to learn something, I think, today. The thing I learned, I didn't see this myself until I studied this. Persecution is not merely someone pressuring you not to practice your religion. I think we think about it that way all the time. You know, persecution, someone trying to stop me from being a Christian. Do you realize much more often the enemy brings persecution in the form of temptations to disobey God? That is true persecution. The, per, the, the temptation to walk away from obedience in your faith, that is the way the enemy persecutes. Much more often than, I mean, for every Christian that's ever been pressured to stop practicing their faith, there are a million Christians, including that one, who have been tempted by Satan and his enemy, his, his, his forces, the enemy in general, to stop obeying Christ. That's a daily occurrence for everybody. He brings trials and temptations that lead us into sin of one kind or another, that, friends, is the purest form of persecution. And if you've never understood your own tendency to give in to sin 
as a form of persecution, then you haven't understood the battle that you've been waging. If you don't understand the battle you're waging, well, you certainly can't be prepared to triumph in it. This is the insight. I want you to remember the story of Job for a minute as a good example. The Lord allowed Satan in that story to have a time with Job of persecution. But what was the persecution? It wasn't people knocking on Job's door saying, are you worshiping Yahweh again? You need to cut that out. No, it was him giving boils and killing his family and taking away his, life, uh, his, his livelihood and putting him under trial after trial after trial. What was the hope of that? What was Satan trying to accomplish? He was hoping to prove that Job's faithfulness was merely a result of the material blessings that he had received. And if you took those away, he would revert back to cursing the name of God. That was the point of the persecution. How did he respond? This is what Job says. Now, first of all, he was pretty unhappy, right? Proof that you can be a God-following, righteous person and life can still suck. <laughs> Just saying it like it is, right? That's true. All right, here's what he said, though. Job 13, 15. Though God slay me, I will hope in him. Nevertheless, I will argue my ways before him. Isn't that it? That's perfect, isn't it? Not giving up on you, my faith is not wavering, I know you're good, but come on. <laughs> what is up with all this, God, right? That is, our, that is almost the daily prayer of every Christian in some form or fashion, right? The Bible is telling us in the proto-evangelium that there will be enmity between the seed of God and the seed of enemy, period, always, which means Satan is always on the prowl against us. He has an instinctive desire to pro persecute us through trial and temptation, in the hope that we stop obeying God, or at the very least, we lose the joy of obedience. All right, that is his approach. That is the enmity that we should expect. It is the purest form of persecution. And when it comes, when the enemy persecutes you, and I'm, again, I'm not talking about someone knocking on your door and saying, stop being a Christian. It might happen, but that's not the more likely one. The more likely one is you go home today and something tempts you, to, to, to do an unkind thing, to stop obeying in some area. That's what's gonna happen. It happens every day, right? Usually in the conversation in the car on the way to church. And when that happens, here's what you need to remember. The enemy is following the Lord's script. The Lord brought that moment to you. He's not the author of sin, but he is using the enemy in a grand plan of which the enemy himself has no concept he's part of necessarily, and he's putting him to work in your life in a moment to put you in a position to learn something, in a trial, in a moment of temptation, something that will ultimately bring spiritual maturity if you handle it well. And when you understand it's in this battle moment that you're in the middle of the enmity, you're in the middle of the struggle between God and Satan in a sense, you can address it in a new and better way. You can think about it differently. And remember, God has not left you there alone. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that you have been put in that moment with plenty of support. He says this, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond that you are, uh, what you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Now you notice he said the word also there. With the temptation will provide also a way of escape. In other words, God brought the temptation through Satan. He's not the author of the temptation. He just kind of lets Satan have a little leash. And then he brings an escape also. He is the bringer of both. 
Don't ever get this in your mind like there's some cosmic battle between God and Satan and some days Satan is winning, some days God is winning. Nonsense. Satan is only alive because God's let him live. At any moment this is over. He's got a plan in how he gets there and the plan is let Satan do some good things for God unknowingly by putting us in positions to learn things we need to learn. And what is this way of escape that he's giving you at times? This way of helping you through the temptation? Well, I like to think of it this way. It's always been my mindset on this. It's like, Sin is like a freeway. You know how you just get up to speed and you don't want to slow down for anything? You'd rather cut somebody off than hit the brake. And that's how sin works in our life. We just tend to get into a mode of sin in some area of our life and we just run with it. And if Satan comes into our life, and again, I'm using him as the poster child, but it could be a demon, it could be just the way of the world, something God lets come into our life for a moment to give us a moment of testing. And we, buy, you know, we, we take the bait, okay, but now we get to learn from that. And we're in, the, we're in the mode of going down the highway in our sin moment. God is putting off-ramps left and right all around us. They come in the form of a way to stop what you're doing, to move off of what you're thinking, to change your pattern of behavior, something that's right there. All you gotta do is take the off-ramp. If you take that step, it's a turn, it's a movement. You have to do something, yeah, but when you take that turn, you know how off-ramps work, right? You ever taken an off-ramp you didn't mean to? It's like, oh well, I guess I'm going down this road now. That's how the escape works. You give God that step that he's asked you to take in spiritual strength and moving with him, and he puts you on a new path. You can't get back to the freeway. Not right away. He'll take you out of the moment. He'll take you out of the desire. He'll put you into a new situation. Something will help you through that moment, and you'll see it in hindsight. Oh, look what God just did for me. How many of you have seen the off-ramps and just didn't turn? Everyone's hand goes up, right? We all know that. When you fail to take the off-ramp, you are throwing your support behind the enemy and his purposes. In effect, you've put on the enemy's uniform for a moment. That's the way to understand this. You resist his schemes in a battle that is going on around you, a much bigger battle that you are just a foot soldier in. Think of it in bigger terms. This works for me, maybe it'll work for you. Sometimes when I'm battling my own flesh, I don't really care if I win, right? Sometimes I don't mind losing that battle because there's something I think is fun in what I'm getting for myself. It's a bad choice, and in the end I'll regret it, but in the moment, it's hard to see myself as winning when I battle my flesh. I almost rather lose sometimes. That's the deception of sin. But, We never like to see bad guys win in movies. We never like to see bad guys win in politics. We never like to see bad guys. When I start to see this as a bigger battle than myself, I realize, wait a minute, do I want the enemy to win right now? Do I want to see his purposes met right now? Now all of a sudden I'm not battling against myself, I'm battling against part of a bigger bigger spiritual battle that I know which way it needs to go and I want to be a part of the winning side. It's just a moment, it changes your attitude, but it helps. The Lord is going to provide a way of escape if you're willing to take it these off-ramps, and once you take them, in my experience, it's easier to take them the next time and the next time. Next thing you know, you're on a different freeway. So with that, the trial of Jesus is ready to start. Now, we only have so much time today, so we won't get very far in it, of course, but I want to introduce it. And then next week, as we finish this chapter, we'll get into the heart of it, I guess. Let's look at verse 57. It says, those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. But Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward 
and said, this man stated, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. The high priest stood up and said to him, do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you've said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. All right, this gets us into the trial. I want to give you some more background like we did at the outset of this morning. There's some things you need to understand about what's going on. The trial of Jesus was actually a fairly complicated affair. It involved two separate trials held in four different locations, some of which is recorded in this gospel, other parts are recorded elsewhere. Uh, First, there was a Jewish trial. There was a Jewish religious trial, again, two different laws, right? So you have the Roman law, you have the Jewish law. The Jewish trial is conducted under Jewish law, the law of Moses. And it's conducted by the high priest. They're like the, you know, uh, on, like on our Supreme Court, you have the, 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 the one justice that runs the Supreme Court. Well, they had the high priest who ran these kinds of trials. And to make things even more complicated, there were two high priests in that day. Not that there should be, but uh, in the way that the Gospels recount the whole of this, it starts in the priest uh, Annas' home. Now, Annas, we learned about him in an earlier lesson, if you were here. Annas had been high priest back about 30 years earlier from this point. But he had been deposed by the Romans because he wouldn't play along with the Romans and what the Romans wanted in Judea. He resisted the Romans. The Romans said, okay, you're out of a job. And in place of him, they installed their own choice as high priest, a relative of Annas called Caiaphas. Now, that's not how the Jews appointed high priests. So this ended up with a split where the Jews saw Annas as still their legitimate high priest, but they had to respect Caiaphas because the Romans made them. So you end up with two high priests. So in that day, that meant two trials. Each of those high priests wanted their turn at Jesus. And it begins, according to John's gospel, in the priestly home of Annas, and then it moved to Caiaphas' home. Matthew only records Caiaphas' part, and that's all we're gonna study because of that. But both are run in very similar ways. Same basic monkey business is happening at both of these trials. And as you heard, following closely behind is Peter. And Peter is watching at a distance. He doesn't want to get too close. He doesn't want to be associated with Jesus under these circumstances, but he's dying to know what's going to happen. Now, in both of these trials, it is a nonstop abuse of the Jewish judicial system. Nonstop. They will physically abuse the prisoner, violate his civil rights, and there were civil rights for prisoners under Jewish law, and they go after false testimony after false testimony, trying to build a case against Jesus that just isn't there. John tells us about Peter in his gospel. Matthew mentions him here briefly too. In verse 58, as it moves from Annas to Caiaphas' trial, you see Peter gets a little braver. He goes into the courtyard of this man's home. And there's a little interesting story behind that. John tells us in chapter 18 that somehow John's family was friends with the family of Caiaphas. So when John shows up, they recognize John and they let him in to Caiaphas' home. Peter's stuck on the outside. It's kind of like a, a hot new nightclub and you're not on the, on the guest list. Peter's on the outside looking in and John's inside. So John comes back and tells the guard, oh, he's a friend of mine, let him in. And so Peter gets let in that way. So then Peter's sitting in the courtyard warming himself at a fire, we're told, with the, these uh, police, these guard. These are the temple guard that might very well have gone down to uh, the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest Jesus. We were told there were temple police there. 
So these may be some of the, the same guys, but for whatever reason, maybe the darkness or whatever, they don't recognize Peter at first. Meanwhile, inside the house, Jesus is undergoing interrogation and the priests are calling witnesses to testify against him. Now, there's something you can tell is going on but is not stated in the text if you understand Jewish law. Under Jewish law, you could not convict someone of a crime of this sort without at least two witnesses who have identical testimony. Two or more witnesses had to be present. The fact that it says here that they are calling witness after witness and cannot It says they cannot get witnesses to convict him. It's a sign that they can't get two people to tell the same lie twice. And so they're getting people willing to come forward with lies, but everyone's got a different one. And it's frustrating for the religious leaders. They're so disorganized in their conspiracy that they haven't managed to coordinate two liars on this night. Matthew says in verse 60 that they just keep coming forward. Let me tell you, if they had found two that agree, they would have stopped. At that point, they would have had what they needed. They would have called, it, called the trial over, convicted him, and moved on. The fact that they haven't done that is proof that they have not found that second person to agree until this kangaroo court gets to the point where two men, verse 60, finally succeed, either through coaching or something, to come to the same more or less the same accusation. They say, oh, he testified that he's able to destroy the temple and bring it back in three days. Okay, remember the temple? This is one of the wonders of the world. The the foundation stones of this temple, one foundation stone was 66 tons, all right? This is a massive structure. Jesus said he could tear it down and rebuild it in three days. We understand he was talking about himself. Metaphorically, he is the temple. He was talking about his own life dying and then coming back to life three days later. That's explained to us in the gospel when that statement is made. Of course, they didn't get it, and they're looking at it as slander. They're trying to say, this guy's making a threat against the temple. But is it credible? You know, some crazy guy walks around saying he can tear down you know, a huge building. Do you believe him? No, I mean, this isn't a credible accusation. Moreover, it's not true. They're misrepresenting it. And one of the witnesses' statements is captured here, but if you go to Mark's gospel, you see the other guy's statement, and guess what? They don't agree. They're not identical, which itself would mean, under Jewish law, they're not admissible. But at this point, after a night of frustration, he's like, close enough, all right, let's just go with this. And he stands up, in verse 62, the high priest, and he goads Jesus into making an incriminating statement. This, too, was an affront to Jewish justice because under Jewish law, the, the accused was not only not required to speak, as we have in our law, but under Jewish law, he was not permitted to speak. You could not speak at your own trial because they did not want you to self-incriminate. This guy is not only uh, asking Jesus, he's demanding that Jesus say something, but that's why in verse 63, Jesus does not speak. Jesus does not violate any law on the way to the cross. He does not violate the Jewish requirement that the defendant remain silent. And then, out of frustration, Caiaphas says, I adjure you by the living God to answer me. Now that phrase, I adjure you, is Jewish legalese. It puts Jesus officially under oath. And under Jewish law, once a defendant was put under oath, they must speak. Not only do they lose their right to be silent, they are required to speak at that point. And as Jesus continues to follow the law, he now speaks because he's been forced. And they say, prove to us or say to us, are you the Christ, are you the living God? And Jesus responds in verse 64 saying, you have said it, which is a way of simply saying, you are speaking the truth. I agree with that statement. 
Under Mark's gospel, we also find out Jesus says, I am, as again in the great I am. So he specifically answers the question. Now this is a little moment to take away as well today because if you've ever heard this and these people are out there, I've met them, they will be people who come along, unbelievers, scoffers, who say, you know, Jesus never actually claimed to be the Son of God. He taught about the Son of God. He taught about the Messiah, but he never said he was the Messiah. That's nonsense. And there are many places in the gospel where he says he is the Messiah. Here's one of them. Plainly on the page in front of you. Now, by the way, as you hear these things from people, just because someone says something doesn't mean it's true. You need to always be aware of that. People say, well, you know, the Bible never says this. Don't believe that. They don't know. Now, who knows the Bible least? Believers or unbelievers? Right? They may study it, but they have no clue what they're looking at. All right, so after Jesus declares under oath that he is the Messiah, as we wrap up for today, the high priest has heard enough, and at this moment, the religious trial effectively ends, and the next one, the Roman trial, will begin. And that's where this history of Rome and Israel comes back to the foreground. Though they have convicted him according to their law, they can't execute him. If, now you think, well, what's stopping them? Why don't they just do it while no one's watching? They'd be accused of murder under Roman law. And then they themselves would get hauled into a Roman court for having killed someone unlawfully. So they don't want that. So they've got to work with the Romans to get this done. They could only have done it if they were in the temple. So they're outside the temple, they're having to deal with the Romans, and so they're gonna now hand him over to the Roman officials, and then they gotta make a whole new case. Because guess what? Blasphemy, which is the charge that they will level against Jesus, is not a crime under Roman law, because the Romans could not care less about Jewish gods and blaspheming of Jewish gods. So they have to come up with a new charge that will stand the test of Roman scrutiny. The one they have here that says he'll tear down the temple, that could have been a concern to the Romans. They don't like it when you tear down their buildings, but it's not credible. So they're gonna have to come up with new ones. We'll see that next time. But before they do that, and this is the part that I want you to remember as you leave today, they know they're about to lose control over Jesus. They're gonna hand him over. So because of that, they will take an opportunity to abuse him now viciously while they still have him in custody. And that physical abuse is gonna render Jesus unrecognizable in appearance, the Bible says. We're gonna study the physical effects of his torture in in coming days and weeks. Uh, I just want you to understand as we do that, as difficult as that may be, uh, there is a godly purpose in this as well. Literally, there is a godly purpose, which I'll explain in a coming week, why Jesus had to be so horribly disfigured, why he had to be uh, damaged in this way, even as he goes to die later. There's a biblical purpose in that. We'll talk about that in the remaining weeks of this study. And as we leave today, as you go out today, I told you you're gonna face your own trials. You're gonna face your own persecution as I described it because you have enmity with the world and with the enemy and he hasn't stopped. You know, you take a day off from being a Christian. He never takes a day off from being the enemy. So think about what we learned today. Think about the battle that Jesus is modeling for us. Think about your own battle, your own opportunity to fight for good, if you will. In your own life, yeah, but also for the sake of what God is doing in the world around you as we witness to the truth of the gospel by being a light in this world. This world needs light now more than ever. Let's be that light. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus, for his example, for his sacrifice. And I thank you, Father, that you give us the opportunity to test our faith as you will through the work of the enemy or through other means. I thank you, Father, for the opportunity to be a testimony, 
Forgive us, Father, for the days we don't live up to that opportunity. But we know you forgive us in Christ's blood, and we are so, so thankful for that. And give us, Father, an opportunity this week to make that better decision we may not have made in days past. Give us another chance, Father. Let us show you we can learn and we can do differently so that we can please you and we can glorify you. And thank you for this church as we teach the word and that we can learn these things. Bring us back next week with our friends, our brothers, our sisters. Let us worship again, Father, every day we can before we see you face to face. I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.